Good morning, Sovereign Grace Church. Uh, I can't tell you how blessed Lydia and I have been to be a part of this church. It is by far the most biblically loving and compassionate church that we've ever been a part of. And so we, we hope from the bottom of our heart that we have been as much of a blessing as you all have been to us. Because um, if we even scratch the surface of that, then I'm sure you'll be blessed. Um, I'm particularly thankful for our elders who labor among us in the power of the Spirit to imitate Christ and to lead us in holiness and in obedience to Him. Um, and, and in that, they, they've asked me to preach this morning. And I feel the weight of that responsibility and, and thank you all for your work among us in shepherding our souls. Um, today, I'm going to get to preach from my favorite book of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation. And it's not my favorite because it's some sort of puzzle that you're supposed to sit before and try to figure out. It's not a, a riddle that you have to try to understand. Um, the first verse of the whole book tells you that the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's something that God wanted to show to his slaves. It's not something that he wanted to confuse them with. And so John, as he's putting this book together, and as it's the last book in Scripture, what he's doing is he's tying all of the strings together from the entire Scripture into this book. And you'll notice that there are 404 verses in this book and over 500 references to the Old Testament. That's a lot, and that's even more than there are verses. And that's not even including the references there are to the New Testament. And so John assumes something as you're going into this book. And he assumes that when you come before the book of Revelation, you come with the knowledge of the rest of the scripture. And that's precisely why so many men go wrong when they read this book, is because they don't come with that. Oftentimes you'll see men trying to figure out when Jesus is gonna come back, whether we're in chapter 12 or chapter 13, and whether or not, or when and where this all took place. Um, and, and that is not the point of this book. So if you would, before I get into my text, turn to Revelation 1, verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves the things that must soon take place. In verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. There's a lot of talk about what's in the book of Revelation being impractical, being unapplicable, and being tertiary, and not something very important for the church. But I think that today, especially in our day, we need this book more than we ever have. If you notice in verse 3, this is the only book in the entire Bible with a particular blessing for reading it. And that'll make more sense to us as to why we need to be blessed by this book as we understand the circumstances that the seven churches that this book is written to were in. They were in Asia Minor. And if you've been here for our series in 1 Peter, that's the same audience that Peter was writing to. And so when you compare these two books, you recognize one thing in particular, and that all the churches in Asia Minor were undergoing a lot of suffering. They weren't being killed and flayed and martyred like they were in Rome and like they were in Jerusalem, but they were still being persecuted. They were under Rome and the Roman authority. And Rome didn't have so much a problem with Christians worshiping Christ as much as they did with Christians not worshiping Caesar. Because Romans were polytheists. They believed that you can believe in whatever God you want to. Your truth is your truth as long as you include Caesar and Rome's truth. At the same time, there were a lot of Jews in Asia Minor. And so old friends and family who were friends and family of the Jews who had come to Christ were persecuting these Christians and were slandering them harshly and were oftentimes giving them over to the Roman authorities. And so in this particular circumstance, that's what these churches are going through. And does that not sound so familiar to our church today? We're in the greatest country that has ever been. And this country, in our period of time, 
doesn't particularly care whether or not you worship Christ as long as you do it in such a way that praises the government. And that's not to complain, that's reality. At the same time, many brothers and sisters in the Lord who still are, many of them, brothers and sisters of the Lord, would have worshipped with us years ago. And I know many of you know this to be true. But nowadays, as pressure has increased, and as the hands were squeezing the church then are so much closer and tighter now, those brothers and sisters would probably be ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. We would be hyper-conservative or, or too serious about the Word of God. And it's primarily because they don't understand the Word of God, as the Spirit has led us all to understand the Word of God. And so just as those seven churches were in those circumstances, we find ourselves in the same exact circumstances. We're not having to bury our church to worship underground, just like they weren't. But there is heavy pressure to worship the government, to get along with friends and family and old churchmen at the expense of the word of God. And in verse 1, you have the purpose statement of the whole book. To those churches in those circumstances, it says this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him purpose statement to show to his slaves the things that must soon take place. In God's infinite wisdom and in his infinite knowledge, and he knows exactly what he needs to say to churches in those circumstances, he gives this book. And so today, as we find ourselves in the same circumstances, what does God desire us to know? What's in this book? And so today, we're going to be in chapter 4. We'll be in verses 1 through 11. And I could say so much about these verses. But I, I'm going to go ahead and assume that I probably won't have time. <laughs> and so I know y'all don't want to be here for two hours or, or more. And so if I miss anything or if I skip over anything, please study on your own. And please enjoy the truths of this book daily because it has been a blessing to me more than I could explain up here in two hours, six hours, or whatever. And so, please, if I miss anything, study this book. So 4 verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Lord, I pray that you would help us in this hour that you would help us as Paul prayed for us in the first century. That the eyes of our heart would be enlightened to the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. 
to comprehend with all the saints what is the depth of his love for us. So, Lord, remove all distraction from our minds and let us see heaven as it will be through the words of your scripture and what our brother John wrote down by the Spirit. It's in Jesus Christ's holy name that we pray. Amen. And so, if you notice, when you read this chapter, the primary focus of the whole thing is the throne of God. It is full of prepositions. And so, the outline for the sermon today is going to be very easy to follow. If you're taking notes, you don't have to write these down because they're in the text. If you notice in verse 2, on the throne. Verse 4, around the throne. Verse 5, from the throne. Second half of verse 5, before the throne. Verse 6, around the throne on each side of the throne. And then verse 9, to him who is seated on the throne. And so it's as if when John gets to heaven, he has one eye on the throne of God, and with his other eye he sees everything else that's going on in heaven. As such should our lives be, that as we walk through this life, with Paul, we have our eyes fixed on what is heaven. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so in this, in everything that we're going to go through, keep your eye fixed on the throne of God. Because as John is telling us, there's nothing in heaven that doesn't have to do with the throne of God. And so, as I believe that this book is supposed to be an encouragement to those churches, and it's supposed to show them what they need to know and what's going to take place. The title of my sermon today is going to be The Blessed Hope of Heaven for the Suffering Church on the Earth. So verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And so at this particular point in the book of Revelation, John is calling your attention. He says, Behold, a door standing open in heaven. And oftentimes, when I read about heaven in the scripture, it doesn't captivate my mind. I'm reading it just as a Bible reality. I'll look at it and I'll say, well, that's heaven. That, that's where God is, right? That's where God's glory is at. But John is saying, behold, there's a door, and it is open to the dwelling place of the glory of God. And so, as we're entering in with John... We're entering into the very dwelling place of the glory of God in heaven. And that should call all of our attention. And that should call us all to, with John, set our eyes on what's through that door. And if you notice, in the next part of the verse, the door wasn't left open. Somebody didn't forget to shut it. And John doesn't have to sneak into heaven. Instead, there's a warm welcome from our Lord and His Lord, Jesus Christ. Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. When would we ever expect the Lamb of God, slain unjustly for our sin, to call us with a warm welcome into the heavenlies to see what is taking place there? And so, behold, he says, I'm going to show you the things that must take place, things that will take place with no argument or no question about it. And they will, they're the things that will take place after this. So if you know the book, in chapter 1, verse 19, he gives the outline of the whole book. He says, if you're looking, write, therefore, the things that you have seen. He's seen Christ. He's seen him risen in his glory. Those that are... So things that are around in John's day, present tense, the church, those that are to take place after this. And so in chapter 4, the end of verse 1, Jesus says, again, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And so we need a little bit of understanding of what's happened in the previous chapters. After he saw Jesus Christ, he gave many promises to those seven churches. In chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, you don't have to turn there, but just listen. It 
Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Verses 26 through 28. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Chapter 3, verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. Verses 10 through 12. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And so to those seven churches, to the seven suffering churches, you have these magnificent promises to the one who conquers, to the one who is faithful. And elsewhere in those chapters, Christ says, if you conquer as I have conquered, how did Christ conquer? He didn't take over the world, but he was faithful unto death on a cross. And in that death, God rose him from the grave. And thus he conquered. And so he's saying to those churches, if you are faithful, if you persevere, these promises and rewards are yours. And so to us, as a church, in the same circumstances, take hold of these promises and see these promises as the hope of your soul and encouragement to you in every temptation and in every trial, in life, in sickness, and in death. See these things as the hope of glory for you. And so after those things, Jesus says, I will show you what must take place after this, after the conquering. And in verse 2, it says, At once I was in the Spirit. This is how the prophets spoke about being given a vision. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And that's our first preposition, on the throne. And so once John goes through the door, what captivates his attention is the throne with one on it. And this is particularly encouraging for the seven churches because they come 30 years after a chaotic time in the Roman Empire. There was a year called the year of four emperors. Whenever Nero died, three other emperors reigned in the same year. They had different ideologies. They had different morals. And therefore, the legitimacy of their throne and the throne of Caesar was lacking. If your government and your morals and your ideologies are changing all the time, what legitimacy does your power have at all? And these Christians offered suffered the brunt of that because the commonality between all of that was that they were still persecuted. It was just the severity between those rulers. But to those churches, what does John see? He sees a throne. And it's not in Rome. It's in heaven. And that, that throne is said to be standing. It said that throne stood in heaven, which means that it's set in place, that it's immovable, that it's not going to change with the times. And there is one seated on that throne. And so to those churches who have suffered the brunt of changing rulers and changing authorities, and even the threat of that throne being removed. There's a throne set in heaven. And I believe for us, that's particularly encouraging in this time. That as our rulers change, as politicians change, as morality in our society changes, that that same throne remains in heaven. And that throne is the throne of Yahweh God. And it is said to be standing and immovable. But John, John describes even more to us. He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, brilliant diamond and dark ruby red. And at this particular point in the book, the final day of the Lord is about to take place, where Christ is about to judge 
the earth for its iniquity. And so before the throne, as we'll go on to see, you have the war machine of God drumming up and ready to drive across the earth. And so in bright brilliance and in dark red, John sees a wrathful presence of the glory of God. But at the same time, he sees around the throne a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And if you remember from Genesis, God flooded the earth and judged it completely one time. And after that judgment, the Lord set a rainbow in the sky as a sign to the earth that he would never flood the earth with water again as to destroy it. But Peter tells us in 2 Peter that the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. And so even in the midst of God's coming wrath and judgment upon the world, in his own heavenly dwelling, God remembers his covenant faithfulness to his people and even to the earth. And in the presence of this blazing, fiery red presence of God, there's a cool emerald green of his steadfast faithfulness to his promises. And that, that would be enough for me. And that, that would be completely enough just to know that in the midst of God's wrath, that he is not going to forget his word to his people. As, as a general thing, that would be enough. But John continues and he goes on and he says, Around the throne, in verse 4, there were 24 thrones. And seated on the throne were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And this sounds almost blasphemous. But there is one throne in heaven that John is talking about. We're all okay with that. We love that. God in heaven as sovereign ruler, none other like Yahweh. But around the throne, there are 24 thrones. And in ancient culture, one king of a particular place would surround himself with other rulers so as to have a council. No one questioned who the king was. But there were, there were those of lesser authority surrounding the throne of God, or the throne of that king. And so in heaven, we see these lesser rulers. And I wish that I could tell you that the church had a unanimous opinion of who these elders were. <laughs> but I can't. And throughout church history, it has been highly debated and very contested on, on every side. Um, and so some of the best commentators, they think they're angels. Uh, in the Old Testament especially, there's a talk of divine counsel of God. And in heaven, with the four living creatures who are also angels, it would make sense that these men are angels. But, but if you pay attention to verse 4, these are elders, and the angels never age. And these are also redeemed men. They're clothed in white robes, which is the righteousness of Christ. And they're given crowns. And these crowns are Stephanos crowns, which are wreaths that you won in ancient time for overcoming, for conquering, like was said in chapters 2 and 3. And angels are never said to overcome the world. Angels do the will of God, and if they sin, they're cast out of heaven. And so I don't believe that it's the best to say that these are angels. And then others do recognize that these are men and that these are redeemed. They say that there are 12 tribes in the Old Testament, 12 apostles of the Lamb in the New Testament. And that's good math, <laughs> right? 24, 12 and 12. However, in chapter 21, if you go and read it later on, John describes the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And he says in chapter 1 that there are 12 gates. And that on those 12 gates were the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And then on the 12 foundation stones of the city were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 
And this is particularly important for this book because the same author who wrote chapter 4 wrote chapter 1. And John, in chapter 21, splits a group of 24 into 12 and 12. And he says the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so if that's the same thing John's talking about in chapter 4, it would make sense for him to say 12 on one side and 12 on the other, or something like 12 tribes and 12 apostles. But he doesn't do that. And th this, this goes even further because if you study the Old Testament and if you understand Jewish culture, 24 is a particularly important number on its own, apart from 12. And it was something that wasn't divided into parts. In 1 Chronicles 24 and 25, there were thousands of Levites. And David, before he died and passes the kingdom on to Solomon, divides these thousands of Levites into 24 groups. And he divides them by the head of their households, the elders. Right? And as he does this, no one ever talks about those 24 elders or those 24 heads of the households. When you spoke of the 24, you were talking about all the Levites. And so these were the priests that went into the temple of God. And this was the complete group of Levites that over time, especially during John's day, had completely disappeared. And in that, we come to chapter 4, and we see that we're in the heavenly temple. The writer of Hebrews tells us the old temple was a copy of the things in heaven. And so it's no surprise that David set up 24 courses of priests, and in heaven we see a group of 24 royal priests. But all throughout 1 Peter, we've been talking about the priesthood of the believer. We've been talking about how we've been made royal priests. In chapter 1, John says, He made us priests and a kingdom. And what do you have? You have a royal priesthood with crowns and position in the temple of God, serving God, not as an incomplete group, but as a completely represented group. And in the context of Revelation, we just finished reading chapters 2 and 3. And we just finished hearing about the magnificent promises to the church, written by the same author, where he talks about if you conquer, you'll be given a crown. If you conquer, you'll sit down with me in authority. If you conquer, you'll be given white robes and a dwelling place in the temple of my God, and you shall not go out from it. And in the very next chapter, what do you have? A complete priestly people, completely represented before the throne of God. And so, brothers and sisters, that is the church. And we stand before the throne as a completely rewarded group. And that's glorious to me. To know that one day... I will stand before the throne of God. Paul says, on that day, the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me the crown of righteousness. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. On that day. And so when I come and I stand before the throne of God, and I'm ready, I've been made ready by Jesus Christ, I'll see all of you. And we will all be rewarded. And so in the midst of our suffering today, in the midst of any trial and any persecution, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the things Christ has promised to his church will not fail. And that we know that we will not be missing one of each other in heaven. But we will be completely made one group before the throne of God with crowns on our heads and the righteousness of Christ, ruling with God, kept safe from God's wrath upon the world. Paul says, you have not been destined for wrath, but for salvation through Jesus Christ. And so in our life, we have much hope and encouragement. 
in the Lord. Amen. And so he goes on in verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And we're seeing the wrath of God again in this time. We're reminded of Mount Sinai when he comes to talk to Moses and the whole mountain shakes and smokes and lightning and thunder. And the writer of Hebrews says that the people couldn't bear to hear the voice of God. So before the throne of God, before chapters 5 through 22 take place, before the wrath of God is about to be poured out on a Christ-rejecting world, you see before the throne and in the very presence of God, wrath. And this is before the final day of the Lord. The Bible doesn't speak very plainly about the day of the Lord or very lightly about the day of the Lord. Isaiah, just listen, it says, There's an outcry in the streets concerning the wine. All gladness turns to gloom. The joy of the earth is taken away into exile. Panic and pit and pitfall are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. Then it will be that he who flees the sound of panic will fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the pitfall. There's no hope. For the windows above are opened and the foundations of the earth quake. The earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, and it tears like a shack. For its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will fall, never to rise again. So it will be in that day that Yahweh will punish the host of heights on high and the kings of the earth on the earth. And in the book of Revelation, John's describing what's taking place in this day. And he says that men will long for death. You see, everything going on right now, especially during Christmas time, everything's great. Men are not complaining as much about their life. They're enjoying all of the gifts they're giving and receiving. But Scripture says that in that day, men will long to die. And John says death will not come for them. They will not die. They'll be stuck. And that day, friend, if you are not in Christ, will come upon you like a thief. And this isn't something trivial or academic. The fear of God should be in you. Because he destroyed the earth and the flood. Jesus says that men were giving in marriage. They were getting married, drinking and eating. But the flood came for them and destroyed them all. And he uses that and he compares it to the final day of the Lord. Where if you're not in Christ, that wrath will come upon you. And you won't know. And you'll long for death and you won't find it. But if you notice, church, we have much hope in that day. Because where are we? Completely represented in the safety of Yahweh God. And we have nothing to fear of that day. So come to Christ, friend, if you are not in Christ. Repent of your sin. Fall before Him. Believe upon His righteousness. Not your own. It won't save you. Because we will be with the Lord. And where he is, we will be also in the place that he prepared for us. So we have hope, even in light of that day. And if you notice again, before the throne, in verse 6, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So there's enough space in heaven. That even before the throne of God in such a magnificent glory of the saints being with him forever. That there is a sea of glass. He is still separate. He is still set apart from all the redeemed. 
from all the glories of heaven, there's still central to the temple of God a sea that separates him from all his redeemed creatures. But around the throne, keep going in verse 6, on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Oh, I skipped. Verse 5, excuse me. Also before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And John, again, is referring to the Old Testament. There aren't seven holy spirits. There's a trinity, indivisible, one. And he sees back to Zechariah 4. Whenever Yahweh was intended to encourage Zerubbabel, you remember Ezra in Ezra's day when he was building the temple, Zechariah prophesied to them, and he said, Not by power and not by might, but by my spirit. And he gave him a vision of seven lamps, seven burning lamps, to represent the full power of God in order to accomplish his work. And so again in heaven, you see the full power of God fully in his wrath, about to accomplish the work that he intends to do on the earth. And so, back to around the throne. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. And there's all this description of who these creatures are. They have eyes everywhere. And if you remember the writer of Hebrews, the Old Testament temple was a copy of the heavenly temple. On top of the Ark of the Covenant were cherubim. Solomon built cherubim in the temple. The prophets saw cherubim flying around the presence of God. They're the guardians of the presence of God. They have eyes everywhere. They don't miss a beat when it comes to the presence of God. So there is no profane worship in heaven. There's nothing that could escape their gaze in the throne room of God. And they're particularly seen in times of judgment in Scripture. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. There are cherubim put in the garden to keep them out of the garden. And before God is going to judge Jerusalem, Isaiah and Ezekiel, they see the cherubim flying around the presence of God. And so these are the highest angels set to guard the presence of God. And they are ready to accomplish His will. Verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. But what do they do with all their power? They never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. So they're guarding the presence of God. They're continually in His presence. Ezekiel describes them as covering it so much that only glimpses of fire come out from their presence. And they can't help but say, and never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. This is why the day of the Lord is coming upon this earth. It's because of the holiness of God. Man has corrupted himself and has blasphemed God as we were created to worship God completely. In perfection, we chose our own will. And so we've all fallen, and we need to repent of our sin. Because God's holiness demands His judgment upon the earth. He says that, I will not leave the guilty unpunished. He's forgiving of iniquity in Christ. But He is holy, and He is completely set apart. And there is none other like him. And I wish that as a man I could communicate that. But I can't. Not even these angels can. They don't just say this once. They don't just say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty. And, they, and they'll say it one time and then it's over. It says day and night they never cease to say it. 
So I could stand here for days and proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. And I would not even come close. And if you notice in this passage, in the focus being on the throne of God, completely set apart, he is still desired to deal with man. And that should enthrall our heart when we read this. And that should captivate us. This isn't academic. This isn't trivial. This is an encouragement to the soul. So verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things and existed and were created. These four living beings set off a chain reaction in heaven. And their worship of the Lord and his complete holiness is not set apart from the worship that we will give to him before his throne. So we'll be there and we'll see the guardian angels of the Lord guarding his presence and they'll cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And all these rewards that we've been given, all the rewards that we've been promised, we won't help but throw them before the throne of God. Because it wasn't our work. It wasn't anything we could do. But it was by the power of Christ in us that accomplished that. And the vision you see in verses 9 through 11 is very clearly seen in what the Romans would do whenever they conquered a city. They would go into a city, they would have battle, and when they would conquer the city, they would march back to Rome. They would go with all their spoils that they had taken from the city. They would march to Rome, they'd march up Palatine Hill, and they'd come into the emperor's palace, and they would come before the emperor and say, Worthy, worthy are you. And so church, see this, that as we go through this life, and as we are pitiful saints of the Lord, that he is called into his kingdom, we march through life as conquerors, in suffering, in sickness, and in death, we march through this life. And here John sees that day when we stand before the throne. We've arrived at our ruler's palace. And we take all the rewards we have for conquering. And we throw them before him. And we say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We can't help fall out of our thrones. We're not deserving of the authority. We only receive authority because Christ has desired to share it with us. And we take our crowns and we throw them into the sea of glass because Christ is the only one worthy of a crown. But he has given us crowns. And if we could, we would take off our robes. But Christ has indivisibly attached himself to us and atoned for his sin. And you don't see these elders throwing their robes before the throne. But all the rewards, all the blessings that will come upon victoriously marching through this life will be cast before the feet of the Ancient of Days who has destined us for this hour. And in that, We mustn't complain about the hour we've been called to. Because in God's sovereignty, as Kenny says all the time, 
Nothing comes to our hands that hasn't passed through his first. Amen? And in that, in our day, whether it be loss, whether it be life cut short, whether it be sickness and suffering that doesn't seem to be cut short, and all of those things, and, and the craziness going on outside. God has predestined us for this moment. And he has called us to conquer. And he's called us to overcome. And brothers and sisters, if we march through this life joyfully, taking arrows as we go, with the full armor of God on our shoulders then we will come before that throne and we'll be joined together hand in hand and cast those rewards before his feet. And Paul says that that glory is so much greater than our trials here. And if you notice the passage that we read earlier from Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, this is very beautiful. Isaiah comes before the same throne, and he comes before the temple. And he sees the train of his robe, and he sees the cherubim crying out God's holiness. But what does he do? He says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Because Isaiah lived on the other side of the cross. Isaiah knew there was more to the law that there was a better sacrifice than the law could provide. And when he saw the holiness of God, he could not stay there. And he cursed himself. Because if you are not found atoned for, you will not stand in the presence of God. And you will stand in judgment to be knocked over, but you'll get back up and you'll be knocked over again because there is no end to heaven and there's no end to the lake of fire. So Isaiah curses himself. But what do these elders do? They worship in perfection. There is no curse that they throw on themselves. And the only way that they could not curse themselves is if they've known they have been atoned for by the blood of the Lamb. And so in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, it says that these elders sang a new song. This is common of the redeemed. Another reason I believe these are the redeemed church is because only the redeemed are seen singing in Scripture. We sing of the redemption that God has done. And so we sing a new song. And we say, Worthy are you, talking to the Lamb, to Christ, to take the scroll, to take back the earth, and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. It's all what Christ has done. Every reward in heaven and all our future on the earth all goes to the glory of Jesus Christ, which fits this book. This is why I believe we need this book. Is because if you believe Jesus wins, praise God. Because <laughs> he does, amen? But that is not what God desired to show his slaves in their suffering. He desired to show them much more. And so when we read these promises to us, we know exactly in whose hands we will be from here and on to eternity. We know that he will keep us from the wrath to come, that he has made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father, that we will reign with him in heaven and we will reign with him on the earth, that we will be rewarded as he promised, that we'll worship in Christ's perfection that he alone can provide for us. We know that we'll see him as he is, and we will be with him always, 
in the place that he has prepared for us. And as Peter said in chapter 1, verse 13, so I would say as an encouragement to you, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your eyes like John on the throne of God. We're going to say he's the reason for the season. But is he? Is he your focus and your joy during this time and after? Are your eyes on the throne and on these promises that Christ has given to his church? And so we read this book. We see that we have a sympathetic high priest who loves us, that calls us to glory, and that this whole book is devoted to that. The whole New Testament. You see the suffering servant. You see the Gospels. Christ suffers. He dies and he goes to heaven. And then after the Gospels, what does the church do? March through the earth triumphantly? No. The church suffers on the earth. And so the whole New Testament is wondering, when is the glorification? When are his saints glorified? When is he glorified? When will he reign? When will he take over? And when will there be no more sickness or death or pain? And you won't find that unless you read this. And so we, we must take advantage in our day of the truths and the glories that are given to us in the Scripture. So that we could say with Paul, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, listen, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we say, come Lord Jesus.